The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. China crisis. The sheer power and ruthlessness of China's president was on display in the Great Hall of the People this weekend as one of his predecessors was dragged unceremoniously from the podium. Political theatre that says, I'm in charge now. As Xi Jinping cements his place as the country's strongest leader since Mao and directs China to follow an authoritarian and expansionist agenda, many in the West are reconsidering their links with a 21st century's aggressive new superpower. But our banks, our politicians, our social media, the phones we carry in our pockets are all wired in to China. And there's an awareness China's able to manipulate all that to enhance its regional or even global dominance in ways we barely understand. So is it too late to move back from this? Are we so dependent on what could soon be the world's biggest economy that we can't afford to disengage? Have we already lost the battle? Or is now the last chance to disentangle our politics, our businesses and our tech from China before we all have to bow to President Xi? That's our question today. The why? And I guess the other thing, Roger, is, I mean, the big question is is the military question, you know, because when you trade with someone, the argument has always been, of course, you know, international trade reduces the chance of some sort of military conflict. If we trade less, does that mean that China becomes even more aggressive? Well, the trouble is its military is also expanding. One of the interesting things that came out of of the latest party congress that we saw there Mm. is a sense that China is changing direction, that what it's doing, the old idea was you trade quietly, you build up your power in commercial terms around around the world, very much the uh, old idea post-Mao of how China would be there. But Xi Jinping's being different now. It's aggressive. Mm. It's get out there. He's building military bases. He's building up his forces. Some think, obviously, with an eye on Taiwan. So I think the military element's creeping in. And that, uh, you know, Hu Jintao being removed, I mean, that was yeah, theatre. strange, strange so that, moment. So if that was theatre, I mean, I mean, he was, uh, the, the official line was he'd taken ill, of course. But that, that was bizarre, because if he was taken ill, he walked right behind President mm. Xi. President Xi was looking straight ahead. He wasn't looking at him. You'd normally be going, turning around, and you're all right, mate. Yeah, no, no, no. there was none of that. That's not the way the game. It's theatre. It's theatre. Theatre to who? To well, the Chinese to people or watching. to the West? Well, everybody, I think. Mm. I think I think particularly for a It's like a audience. don't mess with me moment. Well, no, I, I think it's a, it's a saying, actually, partly that, but partly you'll say, that's the old order. The old order is out. I mean, you know, mm. it's almost as, as barely, barefaced as that in terms of theatre. It's not very particularly sophisticated, but it is sending home a message. Mm. And I mean, also very interesting around this party congress right at the beginning somebody got on a bridge in beijing and put up a protest sign got taken down very quickly but it was out there long enough for people to take that on board so i'm not 100 percent sure that the the ship that xi jinping is sailing is totally watertight it's gonna be very interesting to hear about that when we talk to uh, to george magnus in a Richard, moment but i mean i guess the, the the thing is for president xi while things have been going well while that you know the, the people have been moving from poverty to middle class he's been in a good position because even though you know his detractors would find it difficult to uh, to argue against him because everyone was getting so much better off the moment the economy starts to slow and it is uh, then that argument disappears and the other thing is what about us in all this because we have been drawn in i mean all our big banks all our biggest businesses all yeah. our huge tech giants they're all intimately involved with this yes and is, are we now at the point where we can't actually move we away are, even so if we want technology to? wise we are so uh, entwined yeah. in, in and and there's the question is what are we entwined with? Is there this big kill button, for example? You know, if we find ourselves in conflict, do we suddenly find all our mobile phones stop working and our mobile phone networks stop working? Well, we know, you know, Huawei was, of course, the keynote in, in, in this country in terms mm. of that. People suddenly thinking, hang on a second, is this entirely a good idea? I mean, China also building nuclear power stations, this kind of thing. But what a crazy thing. 
I mean, that was, uh, you know, the idea that Hinkley Point, we, we would put we, a third of the money, basically, for that was going to come from uh, yeah. from China's money. What was David Cameron thinking? I mean, seriously. Well, I suppose it also puts us in the same line as an awful lot of, of countries much further down the developmental ladder, whether it's in Asia or South America or the Pacific or Africa, who have got involved in the Belt and Road Project. They get yeah. loads of money from China to build stuff, but it comes at a price. And yeah. that is the kind of naked power that's out And the price is it's Chinese government-created money. They there's the bizarre thing. So if you're if, if you're in a, an economy where you're sort of reliant on U.S. dollars and you can't really, you know, your sovereign currency isn't worth a great deal on its own, then maybe you could be bought in by that sort of argument. But for us, where mm. we've got a pound, which we can create, so well, why take borrowed, in effect, created money by the Chinese government and borrow that when we could just create our own money? But it makes me, no sense whatsoever. But there's another thing to eject here, which, I mean, I feel slightly uneasy at this, because it does feel a bit almost 19th century, the, you know, the terrible racist phrase of the day, the yellow peril, we must all be terribly worried about uh, this this conspiracy coming from Asia to take us all over. I mean, part of me says that's just xenophobic nonsense. Mm. I don't know. I don't know the answer. I feel that it's not xenophobic nonsense, that there is a threat, but part of me thinks it plays to something in our characters that perhaps isn't t- totally well wholesome. i mean there is a threat i mean that, that, that theater that you you know we, we talked about just now uh, and also you know the the, the motions being made towards uh, taiwan that this is going to be a choice for the chinese people i mean that sounds like putin talking about uh, you know the ukraine situation yeah. doesn't it so you know we're getting yeah. echoes of that as well and then if those two get together well i mean the, the great thing i mean xi jinping and china is on, on a power and scale that absolutely dwarfs Russia's power in that sense. I mean, mm. you know, it, it is this is a country, I mean, Russia, as many people said, is a very declining economy. China is still expanding, not as much, but still expanding. Anyway, we're going to explore all this with George Magnus, who's an associate of the China Centre at Oxford University, a research associate at the School of Oriental and African Studies, and a former chief economist of UBS, and he joins us now. So, George, I mean, I mean, how worried should we be about President Xi? I mean, has he really changed in, in his determination? And what's his endgame, do you think? I don't think he's really changed. I think a lot of people thought, uh, certainly when he came to power in 2012, and even in subsequent years, um, kind of held out the thought that maybe once he got his agenda out of the way, and his initial agenda was basically to to, uh, bring discipline back into the Communist Party, which he thought had been... Um, led, you know, allowed to kind of uh, decay under the previous administration and got the army and internal security um, services under his control. But after that, he would become a reformer, you know, and that China's kind of move towards a kind of li- more liberal future would resume. But I think that was always a little bit fanciful. And each time we come, uh, you know, across a sort of a new event like the 20th Party Congress that happened um, in sort of mid-October, um, you know, people are reminded really that uh, this, is, this is an ideologue. He's very um, disciplined in terms of his Marxism and his belief in Leninist politics. And yeah, I mean, I think we well, should be worried about China. It, I mean, was, it was on display in a very raw way, that removal of Hu Jintao. I mean, that was that was theatre, wasn't it? Uh, I... I, I who knows? I mean, a cottage industry has grown up to try to uncover what actually happened, and we'll never know. Um, but I mean, it was whether it was orchestrated or not, um, you're quite right that the whole um, events like that in China are very, very carefully choreographed. 
if it looked like this uh, poor old chap, Hu Jintao, who was the president or the uh, general secretary of the Communist Party before Xi Jinping, if it looked like he'd been humiliated, it was deliberate. I mean, he was deliberately, you know, it, it was intended that he should look humiliated. Um, but I don't think it was necessarily orchestrated like, you know, they were out to get him and this is what they were going to do. I think just something happened, obviously, during the course of the Congress and uh, they took advantage of it to um, uh, to belittle him and to basically remove him from the room. But if the, the end game is, I mean, obviously for politicians anywhere, the end game is always to stay in power for, for, for whatever reason. It's just pandering to their own ego, isn't it? But you'd hope that, you know, most people in, in power want to make sure their people are looked after. So, you know, the end game would be, well, OK, uh, we've got different ways of getting there, but we want to make sure that there's prosperity and, uh, you know, people have a have a, a good standard of living. Is that what he's would he, would he be happy with that or is it more expansionary? And should we be concerned that he will take a more militaristic approach in the future? Well, uh, I mean, I think the the abiding message really during recent years, certainly corroborated by uh, what he said and the messages coming out of the Congress is that um, that China is on a path, right? They they see, rightly or wrongly, they see a moment in history. Uh, I know this sounds a bit kind of dramatic, um, very untrustian, <laughs> uh, but um, but they see a moment in history when uh, they they view the West as being or the liberal capitalism as being in terminal decline. Mm. And they think that it's their moment, really, to uh, almost avenge what they regard as the century of humiliation, which was when foreign countries carved up China in the 19th century. Um, and um, they're quite, the Communist Party is quite clear that it wants by 2049, which is the centenary of the founding of the People's Republic, they want to be the dominant power uh, in the world. But, but dominant generation. militarily, dominant in trade, dominant in politics, dominant in, in all those ways? Well, dominant relative to the United States. So you can, you know, obviously draw your own conclusions as to what that means. I mean, right. it certainly means, uh, you know, uh, they want to have, they want to be much richer. They want to be much more advanced from the point of view of technology and science. Certainly, they would like Taiwan to be part of uh, the mainland again by then. And, um, yeah, I think they want to be, uh, they don't want, you know, they certainly don't want the Pacific fleet um, of the United States uh, sort of messing around in what they believe is their territorial waters in the South China Sea. Right. But if they, if they uh, want to be the dominant power, I mean, being the dominant military power is, is, is one way towards that. But that doesn't, you know, that's not a long term uh, path to, to being the dominant power in the world, is it? You want to be the global trade power. To do that, you can't do that by uh, being very insular. So you have to play no. as, as part of the world. So then doesn't it just become a question of Xi saying, well, you know, you've got it all wrong in terms of how countries are governed. Our system is better than democracy because, hey, look how democracy is working out in the West. And, you know, it's not been a fantastic track record lately, has it? So maybe he's got a point. Uh, well, uh, that's, that's kind of what they think. And, and, and it's a more subtle way of thinking than, say, Putin's way of thinking in Russia. Um, because I think that China, I mean, it, it's not accustomed uh, to fighting wars and picking um, bellicose arguments with people. It does and has done, um, but it's not really, uh, it doesn't really kind of follow other major countries like Russia or even the United States in that regard. But, um, but the intent is nonetheless 
to change the global order. I know that sounds also rather kind of grandiose, but in just the same way as Japan and Germany and Italy um, thought that they could and should change the global order in the 1930s, um, I mean, China wants to change it now and change it in its interests. So the what we call and what people have called its wolf warrior diplomacy, which was the rather um, feisty and sometimes unpleasant methods it's adopted since the pandemic um, to basically put other countries in their place and to criticize, you know, America, Britain, Australia, um, lots of other places as well. I mean, they, they, they want to change the governance of the world. They want to change it so that it better reflects China's national interests. And they believe that their moment has come for them to do that. Now, obviously, it's an ideological uh, opposite from what we think. And so I cannot see really how this is going to be resolved in a very satisfactory so, and so, kind of biscuits way. What, what are the mechanisms of doing that? I mean, okay, that, that is the idea. Is it, uh, I mean, it, this is where one gets perhaps into conspiracy theories. Is it that they've busy, been busy putting microchips in, in all, all our electronics, all our tech is, is wired up in some way? I mean, and the allegations, of course, about what Huawei was up to. Is it that they use the power they've got commercially to do it? Or, or is it... Is it a, a military in some ways as well? I mean, which elements of this are, are actually active? But it also, are they? I mean, when they say you know they want the rest of the world to be like them, are they they saying well we, we want everyone to be an autocracy. Is that what they're they're aiming for? Are they saying well, we won't be happy until democracy is dead? Sorry, if I if I if that's what I if that's what I came across as saying, I should correct it. That's not it's not really what I mean. I don't think they want the rest of the world to be like China uh, and to be autocracies necessarily, but they certainly want. Um, other countries, I mean, the target here is not, you know, the, the rich countries of the world who are sort of implacably opposed to China, but they certainly want what they call the global south. So that's really, you know, countries of Africa, Asia, South America, and so on, mm. to align their political and economic interests with China so right. that they effectively become, um, you know, what, uh, you know, Lenin and Stalin used to call kind of useful idiots. I mean, mm. that's... So in that way, it's not we're not invading countries, but we are going to put money in, we're going to take control, and we're going to suck money and out that of that control, countries. Judge, can come through lots of ways uh, of the modern era, which is to do perhaps with communication, social media, tech, and that kind of thing, uh, as well as the old ways. Yeah, so if you, for example, I mean, um, I mean, everybody's familiar at least with the Belt and Road, yeah. uh, which is this kind of uh, Xi Jinping's kind of foreign policy, which is to uh, essentially provide, actually it's changed a lot over the last six or seven years because Chinese banks are basically running into lots of trouble in uh, lending to countries. But, um, but they've provided a lot of financing for infrastructure, construction projects, um, uh, which is, you know, to align these countries' economic interests with China. Countries, uh, companies like Huawei, so network communications, if you can basically persuade countries to take uh, Huawei technology and technology standards and internet protocols and so on and so forth, you kind of drag them or, or attract them into your uh, sphere of influence and your uh, reach, as it were. So, yeah, this is basically how they want to do it, as well as... 
um, obviously changing the way that um, discussions and rules are made in, in organizations like the United Nations, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and so on. So, so in this, uh, talking about Huawei, I mean, do you think that there is this fear, isn't there? And, you know, we've seen it, for example, with uh, the Western countries pulling Huawei out of uh, big infrastructure projects like uh, like Boris pulling it out of 5G in uh, in the UK and, uh, you know, the, the London Underground and all that sort of stuff. There's this fear that somehow Huawei is acting for the for the Chinese government and there's uh, there's inroads into the technology so that, you know, if there are times of unrest, there's this, you know, magic kill switch which is going to suddenly turn all our telecommunications off. And this is embedded in almost every single thing that we're using because there's chips that, you know, almost everything has a, a bit that comes from China. And somehow they're smart enough to have got all of this to work together. And we are going to become subservient to China through yeah, this, I mean, through this is technology. Is that just paranoia or is, is there it sounds like some basis? When, when I say it, like I've just said, it, it sounds like complete paranoia, yeah. doesn't it? Conspiracy yeah. theory. It, it does. And my response to that is many a true words spoken in jest, you know, yeah. because it does sound a lot of fanciful. However... I would point out that China's intelligence laws, recently passed, by the way, actually require any company or household in China to pass information to the state um, under all circumstances if requested. Um, also... But we do uh, that. I mean, that, that's like, you know, the whole PRISM thing about, you know, information that's that's passed through the, the big providers in America as well, you know, the five eyes. We're doing that too. Uh Sort of, but not in the same way. I mean, there there is no, I mean, data, basically, for want of a better phrase or word, data is considered public property and, and actually state property. Mm. Um, so there is no, um, there's no kind of private, I mean, we kind of fret a lot and fuss a lot about data privacy as we should, um, but actually there's no such concept as data privacy really in China. You can't transfer data out of the country. You can't um, store data without the state actually uh, acquiring it if it chooses to. There's been a huge regulatory crackdown on data platforms and companies, private companies, ostensibly private companies, um, um, who uh, store, you know, collect and data and use it for commercial purposes, um, which the state has effectively been able to commandeer or, or kind of take over. So it, it's very different. And they also have a kind of a mission. They have a, what they call their civic military fusion uh, strategy, which is that anything, if we sell semiconductors or <clears throat> advanced technological goods to China for the purposes of, you know, making traffic lights work better, or uh, I don't know, you know, putting in microwaves or whatever. Anything like that can and should be, uh, is being nurtured to have uh, military and intelligence and surveillance applications. I mean, we don't really do that in the same way, certainly. And so it's, it's treatment and use of data in a very, very different way that we are comfortable Does with. that mean, though, that we and in the West are now in too deep? I mean, can we, should we disengage uh, from China in that way, in finance, in tech, in, in all these areas? And, and, and are we able to do so? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and it's the subject of a lot of discussion. Uh, as you can imagine, in political and uh, commercial and trade circles. But it is happening, right? So we call it decoupling. The Chinese call it self-reliance. It doesn't really, you know, does it matter if Burberry sells, you know, handbags and luxury leather goods in China? Well, no, not really. Um, it's, you know, hardly uh, sort of 
groundbreaking, you know, intelligence breaching uh, material. But when you uh, kind of consider a whole range of products and services that now fall into the category of um, uh, you know, national security or aerospace, um, then you're starting to talk about serious stuff that actually, even if it doesn't have ostensibly military application in the first instance, it might, uh, and it might be commandeered for military or intelligence and surveillance application. So, um, I mean, I can't, you know, we can't go into sort of great details about this, but um, uh, about two weeks ago, the United States Commerce Department um, introduced a whole raft of regulations um, designed to effectively decapitate China's semiconductor industry. Yeah, they were described as a Sputnik moment I saw out there, sort of analogies with the Cold War and, and something almost existential for a lot of Chinese tech. Is, is, that, is yeah. it as big as that? So this is, this is all, all the smart technology like artificial intelligence, the stuff that America might be more advanced than China on that they didn't want China to get hold of because they could use that to perhaps... Uh, use it against the US. That was the yeah, that was the exactly so. But so part of it would also be the the technology race as well, wouldn't it? We don't want to give you too much of a leg up because we are leading you in this area. Yeah. So up until now, you know, the the United States and other countries, including the UK and Europe, Japan, and so on, they 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 might have targeted specific companies or specific products. Uh, which they thought, oh, this is a bit close to the bone. You know, we don't want you to have this or we, we don't want you to trade with China on this and so on and so forth. This is quite, um, this is unique. Uh, this is kind of a, an assault, really, on the entire, almost the entire chip industry in China. Um, so I think it's a pretty big deal. And it is, at, in, at the very least, it's going to set the Chinese back a long way in terms of time. Right. Uh, but and it might actually be very effective. But isn't it going to set us back as well? So, I mean, if we're not providing that technology, then that technology is not being added to to use the products that we might be buying back from them. So we might yeah. have to, you know, that, that whole supply chain. And we're seeing this time and time again in all sorts of different areas, aren't we? That, that question about, well, do we need to replicate those supply chains internally and become less dependent on China? You know, not just for technology, but anything that they're producing on the cheap that, uh, you know, is going to cost us more. If we start yeah. bringing that all back home, well, first of all, we haven't got the people to do it because the unemployment rates are, the, uh, you know, close to an all-time low. And secondly, it's going to cost a great deal more. And we're worried about inflation right now. I mean, we, it's, it just spells disaster for for the Western economies, doesn't it? That's that's a good summary of the global economic crisis in 2022. <laughs> there we are. He's good at that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> 16 minutes in, we've got it all covered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, just as a kind of an add-on, I mean, I think that's the problem, is that, you know, we've, our experience, really, I mean, most of us, some of us are sort of old enough to remember what the world looked like before 1980, but our collective experience in the world, really, is of the globalisation that's happened since really since the 1980s. <clears throat> and uh, what we're seeing now is, even if it's not actual kind of deglobalization, it's definitely disengagement with one of the principal actors in that story, which is China. And disengagement is going to produce costs, uh, as you've described. It's going to make, uh, you know, reshoring or, you know, shifting your production from, you know, China to India or from China to Mexico or Turkey. It's going to make it more expensive. It's going to create uh, disruption. It's going to interfere with supply chains. But, you know, as the French would say, que faire? You know, what are we supposed to do? Yeah. Um, I mean, we're confronted with uh, an adversary that has a very strong sort of ideological Leninist agenda. We don't really kind of comply or concur with it. 
And um, yeah, the cost of dealing but, with that. But the banking way. side as well is another interesting thing, the finance area and all this, because we talk about manufacturing, but I mean, HSBC, for example, very, very deeply tied in now to, to China and many other banks and finance houses besides. That element, which is a major part of the global economy, is also going to find it really hard to pull back. Yes. I mean, obviously, firms are very reluctant. Uh, you know, they sometimes it's a little bit disingenuous. I mean, they basically throw up their hands and they say, look, we're, you know, our only interest in life is to make money for shareholders and ourselves. And that's obviously ostensibly true. Um, but um, w- what we're kind of talking about, I suppose, with regards to China, I mean, it is special. I mean, nobody would make this case if we were talking about Saudi Arabia. Or, I mean, people do. There are moral reasons why people you know, worry about business with Saudi Arabia, or with Turkey or Mexico or something like that. But um, in China, I mean, China is the only country that's big enough to really make a huge difference to the way the world works. And so um, we do kind of fret much more about China and businesses actually are getting a little bit, uh, they're reluctant, as you say, um, or as we have agreed, uh, but they are beginning to become less tolerant of the idiosyncrasies of dealing with the Communist Party in China. And, um, you know, according to business surveys conducted by European and American chambers of commerce that represent thousands of firms in China, um, about a quarter of them actually are looking at places outside of China for future investment. Now, you would never have seen that happen 10 years ago. But why why is that? Is that because we're worried that China is becoming less reliable now then? Because they've got this, this agenda to grow? Because everyone wants to grow, of course. The US would like to stay the world's biggest economy and, uh, you know, would like to do more trade to, to enable that to happen. So if we put all the paranoia to one side, I mean, could it just be, here's China, you know, let's put their political regime aside. Here's a country that just wants to grow. They're already, you know, one of the world's biggest economies. They want to grow more. Uh, they would understandably see if the West starts going, oh, well, we're going to trade with you less because we don't like that idea very much. Then the first thing you're going to do and say one of the reasons we're going to trade with you less is because we don't trust you anymore because you've got all these microchips everywhere and we're worried that you're going to press the kill switch. Uh, and, you know, all sorts of other reasons that we can find not to trade. I mean, it, it, couldn't it just be paranoia on our part and China is just stating an aim that you'd expect them to? We want to be the biggest economy in the world because guess what? We're not that far from it right now. Yeah. And so and I think so politically, I think we've we've kind of crossed a Rubicon, I think. I mean, politically, I think we've effectively said we we know what your intentions are. And actually, we don't think it's a really good idea. I mean, we'd like you. It's nothing against the Chinese people who we hope they become more prosperous over time and so on and so forth. But we don't really want to facilitate um, and make it easy for the Communist Party to establish a kind of, uh, you know, its governance system, which will affect pretty much you know, global institutions and, and everybody else. Mm-hmm. So politically, we've crossed that Rubicon. Commercially, we haven't really done so yet. Um, I mean, we might only do so perhaps in extreme circumstances where, for example, if there were, you know, a military assault on Taiwan and so on. But I think that the the commercial relationship with China in future is going to be very horses for courses. Mm. You're, if you're selling products into China or dealing with Chinese companies where, you know, the products are pretty non-contentious and where there might be kind of mutual, you know, commercial advantage. I don't think it's going to be a big problem. But um, there are obviously in tech advanced, um, you know, semiconductors, 
um, uh, artificial intelligence, surveillance equipment, and so on and so forth. There are a lot of things now um, where I think we are we have drawn the line, and we will be leaning on companies not to make things easier. And companies themselves are going to find themselves in the crosshairs of uh, rival regulatory and legal systems between China and their home countries. And then they're going to have to choose. I mean, HSBC is a classic, actually. Um, I mean, obviously, most of its revenues come from its uh, greater China business. Yeah, and, that, and it's been very obvious that they feel that. But is there a sense, George, you know, just taking from your own writings on this, in fact, a book you published not long back, um, that this could sort itself out in a rather different way? Is Xi Jinping actually, is his China that stable? Is his governance of China that stable? Or does it contain, uh, to use a nice Marxist analogy, the seeds of its own downfall? Is there a, a possibility that this what he's established won't work, which would, I suppose, solve all our problems. And, and is he going to face internal pressures as well? Because yeah, it's, easy, easy, yeah, it's easy to lead, isn't it, when the economy's doing well and you're moving people from poverty to the middle class. But well, if uh, if that stops happening, then, uh, yeah, you've got to control your own population. And if you, the way you control that is through uh, heavy-handedness, uh, then people are just going to revolt. Yeah, I mean, my view is that uh, the economy in China, which obviously has been you know, the platform on which China has been able to project its power uh, internally and to the rest of the world. The economy is now Xi Jinping's Achilles heel Mm. in this coming decade and beyond. Um, And I think, um, you know, there could be some very uncomfortable moments in years ahead, rising unemployment, you know, stagnant economy, uh, unable to a kind of uh, break out of this kind of what economists call the middle income trap. Um, but, and I think that could be the cause of uh, angst and distress and perhaps even political instability in the upper echelons of the party. Not now, but maybe in, in years to come. All good arguments to start a war. All of those, aren't they? Well, you know, when the uh, chips yeah, are down, I mean, could, let's divert people. Uh, let's in. Could, it could certainly, uh, you know, emphasise the sort of nationalistic bent which we can already see. Mm. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, the trouble is, you know, if you could rely on my view as being the truth, um, which is not something That's I what would we're doing, <laughs> not something <laughs> unquestioningly all the time. <laughs> but then, then we might take a much more relaxed view about uh, how we deal with China. But the truth is, we don't really know, and we don't really know how the Chinese government or the Communist Party would react in future uh, if it were if it felt threatened domestically by economic uh, weakness or stagnation, or indeed if, um, you know, events uh, happen that, um, that lead to kind of missteps or miscalculations. So mm-hmm. I think we do have to be on our guard, uh, even though we may... Yeah, because there is this, this terrible cliche when anyone talks about China, people like myself who doesn't know that much about it, we talk about the, the mandate of heaven was the old idea, you know, that the leadership somehow, by its luck, by its fortune, was allowed to continue because people thought that was fair enough. And the old idea that there was a bargain between the Chinese people and the government that, you know, we'll elect you prosper if you let us rule the country. Do all those things still hold? Uh, yeah, I think they do. Um, I think they do. I think the, uh, I mean, the legitimacy of the Communist Party in power, um, and that's its prime, perhaps its only aim, actually, is to remain in power unchallenged. Um, but the legitimacy of the party has always rested, really, on, uh, or has certainly for the last 30 or 40 years rested, on the idea that people would become more prosperous and that, um, you know, your children and your grandchildren would be in a better position than you are. 
And so far, that's actually exactly the way it's worked out. It's faltering a bit now, though, isn't it? It is faltering now. And I think that's why this question of legitimacy is important. And it's been worsened, really, by the government's uh, zero COVID policies. Now, we can only imagine and assume that at some point in the future, you know, that zero COVID will be abandoned. But it is in situ right now. It looks like it's going to continue into 2023. But it's a curious thing, isn't it? Why is that? And people are very anxious about it and they don't like it. Mm. Why is that? I think there are two reasons why it's difficult for China to abandon this policy. One is public health, right? So they don't have mRNA vaccines yet, and like we have. They do. They have not vaccinated a sufficiently high number of their elderly population, although you'd think that in an autocracy it would be very easy to mandate it. Mm. And um, you, uh, if China did abandon zero COVID and had the same kind of case um, incidence rate as Hong Kong had in the last 12 to 18 months, um, then the whole Chinese hospital system would be completely overwhelmed. Uh, So I think for public health reasons, China finds it difficult to abandon this. But I think there's also social control. I mean, they they like having the population on a leash. And I think this is a kind of a convenient... Right, but but, 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 but it's destroying their aims at the same time. Look, George, I'm I'm beginning to wonder whether diplomacy is the the way forward for me because I can't feeling... If you sat down with President Xi and said, look, you know, you've got a vaccine... Look, we know you want to grow as an economy and, you know, the United States and the, the whole world does as well. Uh, so, you know, if we all trade together, then we're all going to do better. Look, you've got a vaccine that's not working very well. Take some of ours because it works better than yours. And we won't tell anyone, you know, by the way, that, uh, you know, that they're getting something, a shot in the arm from the West. Uh, but let's get all your people sorted out. Let's trade together. Taiwan, I know that, you know, that's a concern for you, but we'll keep on trading if you just put that on the back burner and don't worry about it too much. Let's just carry on the way we have for the last decade. And, uh, you know, happy days. Why, why, why is all this coming to a head now? And, I, and, and what do you think of me as a diplomat? I think is a new role for me. I'm not convinced personally. But George, what, what do you think, George? I, I, I admire your good faith. Naivety. As a diplomat. But I'm afraid um, it kind of falls a bit flat because actually the trouble is there's nobody listening on the other end. Right. So, I mean, it, but to be serious, I mean, I, I think that it does, it does kind of speak to our dilemma, right? Which is, do we just basically ignore China and just just say, well, you know, they don't want to talk to us, so we're not even going to bother with them. Um, um, I mean, I think I don't really know what's going on in the back channels or what kind of, um, you know, dialogue takes place that we don't really know about between the US and Chinese administrations or our own and China and so on, to the extent that we matter. But um, I, I, I imagine that not all dialogue is completely kind of broken down, but there isn't anything formal going on and it is disappointing that it isn't because i think that we even at the risk of being having the door slammed in our face i think it's incumbent on us to to try to establish you know lines of communication and to see if we can engage in some way um i mean i don't if it i mean if they if the chinese do slam the door in our face which is quite possible um, then at least we'll know what the score is. You know? well, what but what do you I mean by that? By slamming the door? Well, it's in our the face wolf warrior thing, isn't it? Yeah. I, well, we- I think they. I, I think the problem is that uh, you know that we think. I mean, sometimes in the in the kind of Western world, we think that you know bad relations with China are all our fault. But that's actually that's not true. Um, I mean, it's true that there's a very strong bipartisan you know view in the 
uh, in the United States Congress about this. Uh, it's true that in most countries in the world, developed countries in the world, certainly, and in the United Kingdom, there's been a sharp movement in uh, towards more hostile view about China. Um, but, um, you know, but the Chinese too, I mean, have a very kind of... Um, a negative view about foreigners. Well, is that do we know really what Chinese people, as opposed to the Chinese government, actually think? Do do we get a sense of what they think about their own government, what they think about the outside world? Well, I mean, I well, I lived in Australia for a long time, and the Chinese people there, which is quite a well, slice of the population, seem quite happy living in the West. So you know, there's that. But you know, it's the incredibly hard to find out what people actually in China think. It is. I mean, they don't really have you know Pew surveys or public opinion polls. Um, you, you're <laughs> not free to speak. Nobody's seriously. Nobody's really been able to travel to China for the last three years, or vice versa. I mean, Chinese students, you know, still do come certainly to the United Kingdom and to other countries, as far as I'm aware. Um, and um, you know, and, and obviously there are opportunities for exchange, which are still taking place, much more difficult than they used to be. But I think that uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's quite appropriate to kind of um, to draw a line between what you know Chinese people think and what the Chinese. Communist Party thinks. I think the Chinese people, you know, I mean, I've been going to China since about 19, you know, uh, 93, 1994. I mean, I've, I've never, ever not, uh, you know, met with Chinese people who aren't very friendly and inquisitive and so on and so forth. And my experience is, you know, maybe not kind of representative of everybody's, but it's, um, um, you know, certainly some anecdote. Um so yeah, I mean, I, I think probably people the world over are probably much mm. friendlier than they are than they are elected or other representatives. Yeah, I mean, we're all much friendlier, aren't we, than, than our Secretary of State, for for example, Which, whoever that happens to be at the moment. But, so, yeah. uh, so the. The, the, the amount of trade that we have with China, though, I mean, that's not going to disappear. So China exported, what, about £64 billion worth of goods uh, to us in the UK. And, of course, we're just a small slice of the world during 2021. I mean, that's a chunk of that is those, you know, telecoms and, uh, and, and, and all that stuff that's got chips in that we're worried about. I mean, that's not going to disappear. They're going to keep on trading with us. Um, and, if the, and they're going to want to keep trading with us, surely, if they want to be this world power. Or are they saying, no, we'll do less with the West? We'll trade more with those countries, you know, on our Belt and Road Initiative and India and all those other, you know, the, the, the nations that we can have more control over. And we'll trade less with the West. And we are left there thinking, well, OK, we've got to replicate what we're getting from China, which means more expensive, you know, which is where we started this discussion. Everything's going to be a lot more expensive for us. Or do they still see themselves as, as trading with us and we, we keep that relationship going? Oh, I, I think I think Beijing certainly uh, is, is not hostile to trade, right? I think they they actually depend on trade um, mm. to a degree, not not as much as they used to. Um, but, but are we but uh, are we trying to pull away from them? Is that the, uh, well? The- I think I think I think the disengagement is happening to the extent that we actually and the Chinese, for that matter, we we've all become rather sensitive to. Uh, what we might call sole source suppliers, right? Mm. We don't really want to have to rely on supply chains in which if something happens in China, like, I don't know, I mean, obviously the COVID experience was one. Uh, also, um, you know, sanctions, uh, whether they're in, whether we've kind of traded sanctions over Hong Kong or over Xinjiang province and so on. I mean, 
Your container vessel gets stuck in the yeah. Suez Canal. Yeah, we, we don't want. We want to make sure that if uh, if something yeah. horrible happens, that actually we can use. You know, that there are other countries and other production facilities elsewhere which we can fall back on or use. And mm. you know, I mean, Apple, uh, mm. for example, has reported to be shifting its iPad production to India from yeah. China. Yeah, and this is just a kind of tip of the iceberg. It's, it's resilience, I suppose, is what we're all having. Yeah, to learn yeah that exactly. We, um, we don't want to have to rely. You know, when politics gets in the way, yeah. and, um, and and I'm afraid this is basically the reality. Um, I mean, one of the, um, somebody I know quite well, who's the president of the EU Chamber of Commerce in Beijing, he represents, you know, 1,500 European firms in, in, uh, in China. I mean, he's, I mean, he says quite openly that in China, ideology now trumps the economy. And and for us in kind of Britain and in you know the United States and the EU and so on, I mean we kind of think the same way. We we are actually allowing, you know, political issues. I mean you can debate whether that's right or wrong, but the reality is that political issues are now trumping, um, you know, commercial and economic considerations. And that's just that that may not be across the board, right? There may be you know certain goods that we will continue to freely trade with one another and there may be areas where we cooperate in kind of climate change mitigation and so on mm. but um but but it is a different reality but there's nothing yeah. new in that i mean poli- you know if you're running a business political risk is always one of those factors that you look at isn't it when you do determining where you're going to place factories yeah. or where you're going to buy from so it's it's just we've just turned the notch up a little bit and said well russia uh, so china is russia's certainly a bigger political yeah. risk but china is you know a bigger risk than it than it used to be and we're factoring that into our equation. We're turning the dial up a little bit. It's not necessarily a, a, a massive, rapid change that we're experiencing. Well, it's, I think it's. I think it's. It is the same, but it's also at a different level. Yeah. So you know, if companies go to you know Zambia or to South Africa or to Brazil or you know Malaysia or wherever it happens to be, I mean, they know that when they're there, you know, they have to deal with political problems and political risks, and you know, there's always a danger, you know, in some countries if your assets are you know sequestered and so on and so forth. But I mean, uh, I think in China it's different because because the governments are involved in way our governments or the or the the host governments of these companies are also now deeply involved in this mm. so for example in russia um obviously everybody had to deal with the quirks of you know the putin government over many years but actually it didn't really become a big problem until we told them you can't trade here anymore and you can't so one quick question then before we go because yeah. we've uh, we we we, ha- we have to go we've all got lives to get on with uh, this question about Taiwan. So Admiral Michael Gilday, who's the chief of U.S. naval operations, has said recently he didn't want to be alarmist, but the potential for an invasion on Taiwan could happen earlier than they previously thought. The U.S. military needs to be ready. And of course, we had President Xi talking about the reunification of the motherland and it must be realized and it certainly will be realized, he said. I mean, that's scary talk, isn't it? But they wouldn't do that so long as or, there's... Or could so long this as, be the flashpoint, the so, point at which... But so long it? as there's billions of pounds or dollars of goods which are being transferred between economies and, and China is central to that, I mean, that would all freeze up over night wouldn't it china wouldn't be so stupid would they uh i don't know <laughs> i mean i mean here we come back to this thing about politics trumping commerce and economics you know i mean if if logic and reason held sway then the china the, the decision in beijing would be let's make a big noise about taiwan we you know we want to have the we want to have the country united with the motherland but you know 
at the end of the day, if it's a kind of a long-running sore that's still unsolved in 50 years' time, you know, so what? I mean, that would be the kind of the reasonable way of thinking about it. But I, I, <laughs> I, I just don't know. I mean, I mean, I know that that why well, I, I kind of certainly read in Xi Jinping's speeches and in Communist Party rhetoric that it's you know it it's supposed to be resolved. I Taiwan should rejoin or not, or not rejoin, but join in the mainland you know, on Xi Jinping's watch. So that's probably in the next, you know, 10 to 20 years. But it's a political decision that obviously yeah. he... And as you say, politics... It's a real problem, is it? When men else. get old, they want to go back to the way things were. That's uh, that's <laughs> the problem. The way things were is a long, long way back in terms of Taiwan. <laughs> George, we've, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you so much for being with us. Really fascinating, but obviously alarming stuff. But thanks for being with us. Good to talk to you. Thanks. Meanwhile, uh, closer to home, uh, still driven very much by politics, you know, the UK budget, which has... uh, Well, the the Halloween financial statement has been pulled. Yeah. But the prospects are still just as scary. I mean, it's just been pushed back a week, hasn't it? It's been, well, maybe longer, we don't know at the moment. Mm. But the uh, the Office of Budget Responsibility is being involved, of course. Things are changing. Well, they'll be wondering what numbers they're working on. Because if they're going to ratify the numbers, they've got to see, well, what are those numbers that we're we're having a look at? Well, indeed, gilts have actually improved. I mean, the the cost of UK government borrowing is less than they thought it might be, which Mm. could mean that there are fewer of those difficult choices that they keep talking about. Um, But it's still a huge dilemma. I think it's a good for us to have a look at that yeah and what would you do if you were the treasurer yeah. if you were the chancellor what would you do uh, if you were treasurer Aussie yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> saying, a, a fraction of a second, I correcting myself there. Uh, wow. You know, we could have all moved on, but no, let's let's dwell on that. Is it Treasurer or Chancellor? No, no, no. Uh, so what would you do if you were the Chancellor, uh, given these circumstances? I, you know, do you tax harder, which is the Rissi's approach, or, isn't it? Or to try do you put taxes in a different direction? Do you look more to those who have already done rather well in various ways, whether you call it a windfall tax, whatever you do, mm. do you tax them more Because there was a Prime Minister, wasn't I? I remember in the dim and distant past who was talking about growth 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 and you uh, know i think we've all kind of moved on from that well yeah. yeah but it was maynard Keynes, wasn't it who talked about you know when you're facing a depression you yeah, have to you grow your way out of it austerity That's, is not the way yeah and the george osborne austerity of course of the uh, from mm. 2012 onwards do we want more of the onwards, same yeah uh, didn't seem to do good a lot of people thought it was a wrong move anyway mm. a lot to talk about yeah in terms of what should be in the intro well, maybe we can I, get I, rishi yeah. and hunt to listen in yeah i think yeah, maybe yeah come on that would be great wouldn't it come yeah. on if you're listening uh, but otherwise I've got a great idea I think I know the person who we can talk to but I'm not going to give her anything away just in case Ooh. she can't make it she, right. there we are she, there we are yes. yeah. uh, so if it's a he next week you'll know she couldn't uh, th- <laughs> that's right. it for now though so that's next week on The Y Curve thanks for listening in today The Y Curve